All right, this is going to be the last week on evil kings in the Bible for a while. We'll come back to them. There's quite a few of them. So, target-rich environment. But for this last week, there's a little twist. We're not going to talk about an evil king as much as an evil queen. So, that's exciting. And through the story of this evil queen... I actually want to tell you one of her stories, and it's one of my favorite stories about prayer. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that this evil queen, Queen Jezebel, a name you might recognize, is actually going to teach you about prayer this morning. So if you have your Bibles, or if you're using one of the Bibles located in the chairs in front of you, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, that's going to be on page 299. And to get the full force of our story this morning, I want to give you sort of the story before the story. And you're following along your outline there, where first we're going to see Elijah pick a fight. Elijah is a prophet who lived at the same time of many of these kings and queens. And we're going to see him pick a fight to lead us into the story about prayer. So I'm going to start in chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. And in these first six verses, we read that Queen Jezebel has been killing the prophets. So if you look at verse 3, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. So Obadiah is a servant of King Ahab, and... It says in verse 4, And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, she was systematically hunting the prophets of the Lord. It's very interesting that it doesn't say King Ahab was doing this, but directly gives the action to Jezebel. And that's going to come up again and again, that she has a mission to extinguish the prophets of God in the country of Israel. We also read that Obadiah was a man who feared God in these verses and that he hid 100 prophets in different caves and brought them water and bread so that they could survive. He directly disobeyed his king's order and kept the prophets alive. And so in verses 7 to 16, Elijah runs into Obadiah. And Elijah says to Obadiah, Hey, tell Ahab I'm here. Tell the guy who's king, whose queen has been killing the prophets of God, tell him I'm, I'm right here. And Obadiah doesn't want to because in verse 12, he says to Elijah, And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. So he's like, I don't want to tell Ahab, because God's just going to move you when Ahab gets here, and I'm going to be left holding the bag. But Elijah promises Obadiah that God will keep him safe and that he will stay there until Ahab gets there. 
And that leads to verses 17 to 19. I'm going to read those in their entirety. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? That's just a great nickname, by the way. (laughs) And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So Elijah confronts the king. Remember, this is a time there's no checks and balances on the king's power. And so you talk to the king at your own risk because he could just kill you for whatever reason he wants. And Elijah boldly speaks to the king and says, you're acting just like your dad Omri, who we saw a couple weeks ago. And you have brought Baal worship. Now Baal was a false god of the neighboring countries. He was the storm god. So think of Zeus in Greek mythology, but the Canaanite version. Now there's a great irony in this larger story because God has stopped the rain and the Baal worshippers can't get Baal to bring back the rain, which he's supposed to be in control. That's a, that'll be another sermon later. Um, but that's the problem, that, that Elijah is accusing Ahab of bringing Baal worship into Israel and causing the people to abandon, abandon the worship of the true God. And so Elijah's solution to this is found in verse 19. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah says, we're going to go to this mountain and you bring all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Asherah is Baal's wife in that mythology. Again, think Zeus and Hera with the more uh, familiar Greek mythology. And we read that these people ate at Jezebel's table. See, what we need to know about Jezebel is that she was not originally from Israel. She was from Tyre. And guess who they worship in Tyre? Baal and Asherah. And so when Ahab did what he was not supposed to and marry a foreign wife with a foreign religion, he brought in these false gods. And Jezebel was apparently very religious. She was so religious that she ate at her table with 850 prophets of her religion. And so Elijah says, here's the plan. Me versus them. And we'll meet at Mount Carmel. So that gets us to our main story today. That's sort of the intro to the story. And again, if you're following along your outline, we're going to go on to point two there. Elijah wins the fight. (laughs) So start verse 20, chapter 18. And Elijah begins this fight of the gods with a challenge to the people. Again, he told Ahab, bring all of Israel here. 
we want a crowd. You know, we have this, you know, it's almost like the Super Bowl of gods here. We get everybody there, and it'll be me versus them. We got two teams, the worshipers of, of the true God and the worshipers of Baal and Asherah. And look at verse 20 and 21. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Here's the challenge. We're going to see whose God is real. And whoever's real... Follow that God. It's a simple proposition. So you've got two options. You've got God and you've got Baal. You should pick the one that's real. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to have this God off between the two prophets? Look at verses 22 to 24. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So here's the game. You got two bulls, and he even lets them pick first. Elijah's a nice guy. He lets them have the more flammable bull. I don't know how you know that, but... I don't know. But he says, here, we're, gonna, we're each going to make an altar. We're gonna each going to cut up our bull in a sacrifice. But the last ingredient for a sacrifice is you burn the animal. So he says, aha, there's, there's the catch. Nobody gets a lighter. Everybody put your bics and zippos away because we're going to ask our two gods... For fire. And that's how the sacrifice will be completed. So then it makes sense. Whichever God provides fire to burn the sacrifice, they're the real God, and therefore that's the one you should follow. And I love the response of the people in verse 24. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. And so the people are like, You know, that's a pretty good idea. We've never really seen God's fight before, so this sounds pretty good. Sounds like a good plan. So there's a lot on the line here. You have a nation ready to decide who to follow. Now think about if you were the prophets of Baal. You've been eating at the queen's table. It's probably the best food in the country here. You are have a place in the royal palace, and you are seen as the priests of a god. 
The other side of it is, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, if you want to look it up later, if you are found to be a false prophet, the, cr- the punishment of that crime is a capital punishment. So there's a lot on the line for these prophets of Baal. And for Elijah, too, when you think about it. So the terms are agreed upon. The challenge is set. Now let's look at how the prophets of Baal try to start the fire. So let's look at verses 25 to 29. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Again, Elijah's a nice guy. He lets them have first choice of bull, and he even lets them go first. So it's sort of like sudden death. If they light the fire, then he doesn't really get a chance because, you know, he's second. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. To understand the oddities of that section of verses, we need to understand pagan religion at the time of this story. So let's say you have your God. First of all, you have your nation's God. Okay, we all know this from the the Greek mythology or the Norse mythology or the Roman mythology that we might know, that each people group had their own God. And, and, and also, the power of that god was seen to reside within those nations' borders. And so, your god worked in your country, but my god worked over here. But since they were polytheistic, they would just sort of add your god to their list of gods to worship. So if they took a road trip, they would worship your god in your country, but when they went back home, they would worship their god. The other thing is that you need to take care of your god. So let's say you have your little household idol, and it's in your house. It's a nice little idol. You had it made out of silver or something. Well, you've got to feed your God. Now, when you feed your God, if you set it in front of them, then you can eat it later and get sort of special magical vitamins. This is all real, by the way. I'm just telling you, this is how it worked. The other thing you do is you have to take your God to see its friend gods. So you take it on playdates where it would hang out with its other friend gods. You would also have to take it to the bathroom. Now, I don't know how that one worked, but just trust me, it did. 
But the other thing that you need to understand about pagan religion at this time, and again, everyone except Israel was practicing this type of religion. You you sort of got the God to do what you wanted by doing something for them. So if I do X, then the God has to do Y. So if I, if I give him a sacrifice, then he has to give me what he wants. It's God manipulation. So if I do this, then you're forced to because that's how it works. So, now we look at how they prayed. They prayed from morning until noon. Well, he has to answer us because we've been praying for so long. And then at noon, which this is, by the way, this is the spiritual gift of snarkiness in the Bible right here. Elijah says, you have to cry louder. Because maybe he's on the cosmic commode. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he left his house, and you've got to cry a little louder because he's a little farther away. Or maybe he just took a nap, and you've got to wake him up. But if you wake him up, then he has to do what you want him to do. It goes on to verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom. A part of prayer in their form of Baal worship was you could get the God to do what you wanted if you cut yourself during prayer. If I self-mutilate, then he has to answer my prayers. Again, it's a if-then. It's a if I do this, then he has to do that. I can manipulate my God to do what I want by what I do. But no matter what they did, no matter how long they prayed, no matter what they did to their bodies, no matter how loud it was, no voice answered. And no fire came. So now, it's Elijah's turn. Verses 30 to 35. And Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So apparently there was an altar to God there that had been uh, destroyed, probably by Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He reminds them of their history by gathering 12 stones to remember the covenant that God made with them and to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he put wood, uh, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as wood contained two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. So he is preparing 
This would have been very normal to everyone looking around. Now they're going to wonder what he's doing with the trench, but, you know, who knows? So he puts the bowl on, gets the wood in order, and then he ups the ante. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, I'm not a scientist, but if you want something to burn, it's good not to put water on it. When I, when I worked at camp, one of the things I did was I built campfires for the different groups and to make sure I didn't fail, because the worst time to fail is in front of 40 first to third graders. Because they're like, well, my dad does it better. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you know. So what I did is I had a box full of dry wood that I kept in my cabin, <laughs> free from rain, and I just was a hoarder of dry kindling. But that's the exact opposite of what Elijah's doing here. He dumps water on it. Why? Why would you dump water on something you want to burn? The only reason you dump water on what's supposed to be a burnt offering is to show that if the offering gets burned up, it's a miracle. He is moving around circumstances to demonstrate that if this works, it has to be a miracle of God. It won't be just some cheap parlor trick that he was, you know, hiding lighter fluid up his sleeve. No, for this to work, it must be God himself sending fire from the heavens. So he sets the altar Everything's in place. And now it's his turn to pray. Look at verse 36 and 37. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So let's compare prayers. First of all, Elijah addresses God as the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or Israel, excuse me. What is he calling to mind? He's calling to mind the covenant that God made with this people. That he first made to Abraham, and then made to his son Isaac, and then made to his son Jacob, whom he renamed Israel. He is calling upon God out of relation to him through a covenant that God made with those people. Notice also, his prayer is a lot shorter. (laughs) 
And thirdly, the reason for the miracle. The reason that God should do this is not for Elijah's fame and glory. The reason that God should do this is so that the people will turn in repentance to him. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you are, that you, O Lord, are God. The miracle is not about the glory of Elijah, but the glory of God, and that the people would, through this miracle, know that the Lord is God. He doesn't have to yell. He doesn't have to cut himself. He doesn't have to manipulate God and trick him into doing it. But he comes in humility through a relationship with God. So then the question becomes, what's God going to do? Is he going to answer Elijah's prayer? Let's look at verses 38 to 40. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Anything that could be burned up was burned up, even the water. Again, for that to happen, it has to be an act of divine power. Elijah couldn't make that happen. It must be God himself doing it. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Justice was done. Again, in response to Deuteronomy chapter 13. But when I began talking about this story, I said that this is one of my my favorite stories about prayer. And I want to connect it. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, I want to connect it to what Jesus said about prayer. And I want to tell you that this story is a very memorable and objective playing out of these verses from Matthew chapter 6. Let me read those two verses. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. We are tempted to pray like pagans. We have so much in in our worry that causes us to be no different than these prophets of Baal in our prayers to God. Again, look what Jesus says. 
When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Why? For they think they will be heard for their many words. The way that the pagans pray is if they pray long enough, if they pray the right words, if they pray fancy words, that the God will have to listen to them and give them what they want. Again, God manipulation. If I pray long enough, if I pray the right way, God will have to do what I want. That's not how prayer works. How does prayer work? Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The answer is not how you pray. The answer is to whom do you pray? And you pray to a loving Father who knows what you need before you ask him. You don't need to trick him because he loves you. So I want to give us four lessons of prayer that I see from using this text to look at 1 Kings 18. The first is this. There is only one God who answers prayer. We live in a world where a guy named Bishop Gene Robinson, in a prayer at the 2008 inauguration, began his prayer with, O God of our many understandings. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is one true God, and he is a God who lovingly answers prayer. Again, the emphasis is on who we pray to, not how we pray. And our God promises to answer prayer. Now, will we always like his answers? No. But he promises to answer. Second lesson about prayer is, the basis of prayer is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Notice in those verses in Matthew, it refers to God as Father. Well, how do we become adopted children of God to where we can call God our Father? Well, that is through faith in Jesus, the ultimate Son of God. God sent his Son, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might have the full rights of sons. Again, it's not tricking God through great prayers. But it's praying through our high priest and advocate, Jesus Christ, through whom we have a relationship by faith. Hebrews four fourteen to 16 says it this way, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. In the Old Testament, the priest was, God, was the people's representative to God. And through Jesus, we have the great high priest who forever speaks on our behalf to God. And again, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. God hears our prayers on the basis of our belief in Jesus Christ as the Savior. Again, it's not on the basis of how good your prayer is, but it's what Jesus did for you in dying and rising again so you could be forgiven and reconciled to God so that you could have access to the very throne room of God in prayer. Number three, answered prayer is based on a loving God, not a fancy prayer. The style of our prayers does not determine whether or not God will answer that prayer. I think in, in our history, in Christian history, at different times there has been too much of an emphasis given on either the formality of our prayers or the informality of our prayers. But so often that is really just based on how we grew up. In a book called Praying with Paul, uh, Dr. D.A. Carson writes, How did you learn to pray? If, like me, you were reared in a conservative Christian home, then you learned to pray in Elizabethan English. We thank thee, Heavenly Father, that in thy grace thou hast condescended to visit us. However, if you grew up in a modern secular home and did not become a Christian until you were in your third year at university, your prayer began like this. Jesus, we just want to thank you for being here. It's not how we pray. Which, by the way, he, he really does pray like that. Um, I've heard him. But <laughs> it's to whom you pray, and it's through whom you pray. We pray to a loving Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And fourthly, all believers can pray like Elijah. This isn't just something magical that Elijah was able to do because he was a prophet. In fact, in the book of James, James talks about Elijah's prayers. Now, it's a different prayer, but it's still talking about Elijah and his prayers. In James 5.17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was, he was a guy just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. You don't need to be the right person. You know, sometimes I think there's a temptation to find the holiest person we know to have them pray for us because God has to listen to them, right? <laughs> Now, we definitely need to be praying with each other. Don't mishear what I'm saying there. But all of us who have faith in Christ can boldly approach the throne of God in prayer. There's nothing magical about my prayers 
or your prayers. All believers can pray boldly to God and he will answer. Again, that big idea in Matthew 6, verse 7 to 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word which shows us how we should pray and how we should not pray. We thank you that we don't have to manipulate you to get what we want, but that we can come to you in prayer through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we can make requests of you. And we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And that you will answer us not because we're so great or our prayers are so awesome, but because you love us and you know what we need before we even ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?